This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. What of democracy, as well as what of capitalism? Oh, capitalism shall never again flourish as once it did. Capitalism has been almost taxed out of existence in an effort to meet the coupons on the bonds, in an effort to meet the dole system that is absolutely unnecessary in a country of our wealth. And democracy, oh, we who 20 years ago entered a war to fight its battles, to make the world safe for democracy, tonight we stand aghast because its last fortification, its last tower of strength, the Supreme Court of America, who has been the protector of the rights of the poor, who has been the protector of the rights of the rich, who has been the protector of the liberties of all, is now assailed and is now the target for those who blame it for our misdemeanors and who blame it for the depression and the following misery which eventuated from it. There's a fairly famous phrase in political discourse which has an amusingly messy origin story. Many wrongly attribute the idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism to Mark Fisher, author of 2009's Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? But there, Fisher claims two sources for this comment, the Marxist philosophers Slavoj Žižek and Frederick Jameson. Jameson is more or less the accurate originator of this remark, having first made similar comments in his 1994 book The Seeds of Time, and coming back to this concept in an essay titled Future City in 2003. But in that essay, Jameson writes, Someone once said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. We can now revise that and witness the attempt to imagine the end of capitalism by way of imagining the end of the world. This is a far more constructive way of thinking about the problem, but before we get into it, who was Jameson referring to? He seemed to have forgotten his inspiration, but as a speculative fiction writer, I'd be remiss if I didn't call attention to its source in literary criticism. H. Bruce Franklin, writing in 1979, was critiquing the apocalyptic imaginings of a sci-fi writer, J.G. Ballard, when he posed the question, quote, what could Ballard create if he were able to envision the end of capitalism as not the end, but the beginning of a human world? What makes the question especially fascinating is that Franklin's analysis focused on Ballard's use of the automobile as an emblem of societal collapse. As Franklin wrote, quote, back in the short story, The Subliminal Man, 1963, Ballard had projected the automobile and the concrete milieu we construct for it as the basic economic and psychological fact of decaying capitalist society. In The Subliminal Man, Ballard did something extraordinary for him and unusual for any Anglo-American writer of science fiction. He subjected this future, automobilized, monopoly capitalist society to a rigorous analysis showing how the psychology of the people within it is determined by the political economy. 
the vast forces of production, still ruled by capitalist social relations, become a colossal alien power constantly producing more and more commodities and increasingly incapable of satisfying real human needs. If the commodities turned out by capitalist production actually satisfied human needs, they could be sold through rational description. Since this is clearly not the case, in capitalist society today, advertising attempts to evade or manipulate our rational thought processes and to stimulate irrational desires. An entire industry spends millions of dollars annually just on research to discover new advertising techniques designed to exploit and intensify our desires for competitive success, power, riches, admiration, and sensation." End quote. In all of these concepts, Franklin heaps praise upon Ballard before coming to what he identifies as a limit to Ballard's dreaming. Quote, this brings us back to the automobile, the central symbol of Ballard's nightmare. Ballard's choice of the automobile as emblem and synecdoche for the apocalypse is splendid. In the US, 25 cents out of every dollar spent at retail is connected with the auto. The automobile annually consumes 64.2% of the nation's rubber production, 21% of all its steel, 54.7% of the lead, 40% of the malleable iron, 36.5% of the zinc. As Dutch economist André van Damme notes, each year automobiles kill 180,000 people worldwide, permanently maim 480,000 and injure 8 million. Car accidents account for 3% of the gross national product in the industrial nations, a huge sum that should be subtracted from the GNP rather than added to it. And in the words of American Ground Transport, a report submitted to the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Antitrust and Monopoly, we are witnessing today the collapse of a society based on the automobile. But Ballard's failure to understand the source of this collapse, or rather his failure to carry forward that understanding he reached in the subliminal man, leaves him mistaking the end of the capitalism for the end of the world. End quote. A very long but precise and pointed reminder of how far we maybe have not come. Franklin, writing in 1979, seems to have inspired Jameson, writing in 1994, who seems to have inspired Fisher, writing in 2009. It's now 2023, and we don't have to imagine the end of the world. The end of the world, or at least the totalizing impact of climate change on our various ecological and socioeconomic systems, is already, to some extent, here. Another science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, published The Ministry for the Future in 2020. In it, he very much imagined the end of capitalism via the end of the modern world by illustrating how near-future climate change events would literally undermine the ability of current financial systems to keep going in the hardest-hit regions of the world where digital infrastructure inevitably broke down due to extreme changes in the climate, more immediate forms of barter economy, and to some extent mutual aid, would have to rise up in their stead. It wouldn't be a hypothetical, in other words, but it also wouldn't be an end that we consciously controlled. Capitalism would collapse because of forces set in motion by its own industry, returning with a vengeance decades on. A similar situation is now arising with petroleum products, 
which in one very literal way absolutely fueled the vehicle of J.G. Ballard's imagination and paved the highways of his nightmarish science fiction visions. With Russia's war in Ukraine, we're seeing the world become more acutely aware than ever of its fragility and inability to act even against blatant aggressors, thanks to long-standing systems of economic entrapment shaped by our world's petroleum markets. In preceding episodes of this miniseries, if I fixated on US and British roles in petro-nationalism, it's only because the Russian example of contemporary imperialism through oil economies is utterly self-evident. The real challenge wasn't to call attention to how Russia's dreams of empire are inextricably linked to its significant control over global petroleum and gas markets, but to estrange us from our own Western notions of being at all better in this regard. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're extracting a deeper understanding of contemporary global politics through a study of petro-nationalism, the formation, maintenance, and advancement of countries through the oil and gas industries they have created, traded in, and otherwise leveraged for international power, at cost to the humans in them all. But it wouldn't be until after World War II that the United States and its petroleum giants would really shift into a commanding focus on the world stage. With the Marshall Plan, the U.S. would not only position itself as Europe's savior after a ruinous war, but through a highly controlling system of local financial management, also use the opportunity to literally infiltrate Europe with CIA offices, and also to establish a moral entitlement to dictate the shape especially of Arabic nations' political futures. At that time, the Middle East and its significant oil reserves started to be reframed in surrounding political discourse as a global resource. Rather than as a body of local natural resources that ideas of national sovereignty should have recognized as belonging primarily to the Arabic peoples themselves, any attempt by these nations to resist long-standing colonial pressures in a way that would give Britain and U.S. oil giants less access to their oil reserves would be met with extreme political retaliation, up to and including the U.S. and Britain destabilizing active demographic governments in the region to secure and retain their corporate interests. And all the while, the U.S. would further justify its actions by raising the menace of communism and the Soviet Union. 
In other words, it would continue to delegitimize any Arabic pursuit of national sovereignty by pretending that Arabic sovereignty was impossible, merely a front for Soviet encroachment. Nevertheless, a weakened post-war Britain did in fact give many Arabic nations the opportunity to reclaim over time some level of control over their own oil production, nor were they the only oil economies to struggle toward independence on the back of these industries. Iraq had a harder time of it precisely because nationalizing its oil economy in the 1970s put the country squarely in U.S. crosshairs. Whereas Venezuela's greatest enemy was often its own sitting governments, which routinely deprioritized their own citizens' well-being in pursuit of greater oil wealth on the global market. Meanwhile, Qatar came upon its most important petroleum and gas products later on. It was able to draw from lessons already learned by Saudi Arabia, Iran, and other regions fighting for sovereignty through petronationalism. Its very small citizen count also spared it from the problem of having to balance national welfare with the acquisition of oil wealth. Its problems today are moral ones and stem from the fact that it has not extended its notion of citizenship to the 90% foreign population that now helps its people run the industries that have made its native citizens ridiculously rich. Lastly, countries like Morocco are on the cusp of falling into the petro-nationalist trap they are known to have serious reserves, but no one has yet found the big score that will invite international petroleum corporations to step up local production. When that happens, Morocco will join countries like Nigeria in being highly reliant on the broader petroleum market to make use of its crude oil. In this way, it will also risk losing significant sovereignty to oil imperialism. In the last five episodes, I moved us rather slowly and carefully through all these concepts and a few related terms like the idea of state capitalism, which has been used by some scholars to highlight how arbitrary the line in the sand really is between states directly invading other states and states working in tandem with private or semi-private incorporated enterprises to expand their holdings elsewhere in the world and to interfere with other states' politics. We no longer have organizational structures like the Habsburg family, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire for centuries, infiltrating and shaping local politics all across European countries. But we do have modern, chartered equivalents in the form of vast corporations, often connected by trusts, and other labyrinthine legal agreements between constituent parts. And the key for us now is to remember that they are not something to be treated as distinct from sitting elected government. They are rather a very clear and long-standing extension of state government because it is only through state sanction that any of these enterprises are allowed to exist anywhere. They draw all their power through sanction and endorsement by various global governments. Which brings us to the matter of where we go from here. What does the nation-state look like? What could it look like if we moved away at long last from the petro-nationalist enterprise that has consumed the last 160 years in our global marketplace and brought our planet's environment to such a state of ruin under rapidly accelerating climate change? Well, for one, we know that the moment we can divest ourselves of petroleum-based energy and production economies, we'll regain greater socio-political autonomy 
we might no longer be able to leverage our own petroleum power over abusive foreign governments, but will at the very least be able to detach ourselves from immediate, complicit economic relationships with them. And yet, petroleum products very much fuel the machinery of war, which means that asking countries like the United States to give up their reliance on oil and gas isn't just about asking for a significant reduction in Western lifestyle, away from materialist cultures that have flourished under the development of related consumer products. It's also expressly asking such nations to give up the drivers of national defense. Imagining a real end to petronationalism therefore requires a much deeper and more complex rearrangement of the global order. But to make this challenge even harder, the history of the modern nation-state also makes perfectly clear that we've never really had truly sovereign enterprises on a mass scale. Instead, we've always had new nations arising in direct response to preceding state arrangements, as with the ancient modern state of Morocco, when it was first formed in the late 8th century by a leader fleeing a caliphate that he did not support. Into that ancient new country was poured the vague hopes and dreams of many other immigrants who flocked to its newly founded capital and helped make the region critical to the world's markets of the time. Underpinning the new nation of Morocco, though, was an era of Muslim colonialism in the region. However, underpinning the new nation of Morocco was an era of Muslim colonialism in the region, the country retaining its strength and centrality by expanding its dominion over neighboring lands. separate these concepts, ever achieve a sense of national identity that doesn't carry with it a sense of dominance over preceding cultures and an implicit mandate to keep expanding our political reach, either directly through military conquest or more manipulatively through economic conquest and the encroachment of secondary organizations, including corporations, into other states. Robinson's Ministry for the Future proposes that we might indeed have these concepts severed in the near future, but by force, through global ecosystems literally disrupting all the ley lines of our precious resource industries. Already, in many parts of the world, flickers of this end result keep showing up in the way that local organizations have started to fill in the gaps left by struggling state infrastructure. In circles of anarchist and socialist discourse, these groupings are often configured as mutual aid societies, small, localized organizations looking to meet the needs of immediate neighbors. But these are political actors on a very different level from what we've traditionally ascribed to the nation-state. Another wildly science fictional possibility extends from this far more concentrated community focus, the idea of hyper-regional global governance. In this model, we reframe the most important scale for our political systems to bypass the messy size and complex manifestations of the nation. In its stead, we might imagine two core levels of governance, the neighborhood or municipality and the global community of other neighborhoods, other municipalities. 
This is an arrangement that our digital age makes possible, even if it would require quite an international upheaval to come to pass. But why shouldn't more of us be able to directly engage with international governance on the back of the wealth of digital resources we have to help everyone participate in global decision-making processes? It's a grand, grand idea, but even it hand waves over the complex question of how we move from where we are today toward that better end. And that is truly a tough, if not impossible, road to walk, so long as we remain locked into modern warfare with all its reliance on petroleum products, both for weapons manufacture and for the building up of war chests. Also, even if we could dispense with our war machinery, future digital infrastructure would have to be produced without the same over-reliance on petroleum, and that too might be a tall order for our societies. What then is left to us? Are we stuck in this age of petro-nationalist state projects, with all their deeply imperialist echoes until climate change drives us to self-driven ruin? Is there really no way to shift corporate enterprise into something that better serves all human beings and the vague dreams of democratic government that so many of us retain? I'll end this series not with a definitive answer, but with a definitive direction. Even if we don't know what structures will become possible for us as we move forward, climate change and the brutal facts of current war compel us to de-escalate our relationship with and reliance upon petroleum products in all their forms. We need to deepen our investment instead in renewable energy and building materials, and also to reduce our need for as many material products in the first place. As we move more as one in this direction, and as we push our governments and the corporations that they sanction to do the same, we'll necessarily be reframing how we view the world and each other. New possibilities can only arise when we make room for them in our discourse. The real danger, as always, lies in collapsing our rhetoric to only a few rigid binary options and allowing ourselves to believe that no other options, no other structures for society could possibly exist. When we put aside all the histories of political progress and nation-state creation on which we were raised, we're left not so much with solutions to the current problem of petronationalism as with a clearer sense of our overall political terrain. Nation-states are not absolute eternal categories. Corporations aren't immutable forces either. And true sovereignty, along with the idea of a sustainable balance of power between sovereign states, has always been a bit of a myth. What remains when we put all such abstracts to one side is the idea and reality of individuals. Everyday human beings who from birth on have invested in the vague ideals of community and social contract that we've hung around these concepts. The nation might not be real, but human beings are. When we remember that everything we've fabricated doesn't actually have a life of its own, that it's all perpetuated by other human beings, we begin the work of reclaiming our agency, and not just to dispense with ideas that no longer serve us but also to be brave enough to try to imagine worlds that do. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes.
All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.